DW Deutsche Welle. Pulse. Hello and welcome to Pulse. I'm Jessie Wingard in Bonn, Germany. We have lots to cram into the show, so let's not waste any time. Could Africa produce the next Albert Einstein? Lesbians in Pakistan are being silenced, often with tragic results. And did Kenya's youth vote swing the election? All that and more coming up on this jam-packed edition of Pulse. One of the greatest scientific minds of all time, Nobel laureate Albert Einstein, was born in Germany way back in 1879. Considered by many to be the most influential physicist of the 20th century, Einstein's ideas have inspired generations of physicists, astronomers, artists, philosophers and campaigners. There's a mathematical institute in South Africa that might just be in the throes of producing the next Einstein. Young geniuses from all over Africa study there and quite a few are confident they could win a Nobel Prize one day. Dagmar Breitenbach has more in this report by Philip Tutor. It's a big day for 50 young math geniuses from all over Africa. They are about to graduate with a master's degree from the African Institute for Mathematical Sciences, South Africa, AIMS South Africa for short. This past year has probably been the Cape Town alumni's most inspiring and educational year of their lives, and it has certainly been the toughest. Valimba Vaka Ranaivo Manana, a slender 26-year-old with brown hair down to her waist, hasn't spoken to her family in a year. She once shared a single room with her parents and three siblings in her native Madagascar. Since I came here, I never called them, and they never called me. I had a phone, and it was broken. The second problem is I came here to save money because they cannot afford my studies. The third one is they don't have money also to call me. Valima Vaka first studied mathematics in Madagascar. She received a state grant equivalent to about six euros per month. Financial issues aside, conditions there were less than perfect, she says. We had to face many difficulties. We had to work by ourselves. No one was tutoring. We don't have a laboratory. We don't have Wi-Fi at the university even. The main problem also was money. A great experience, but also an extremely exhausting one. The math students studied hard for a year. They slept a maximum of three hours a night once exams started. Valimba Vaka and her fellow student Desiree Mahinga joke that the abbreviation AIMS doesn't stand for African Institute for Mathematical Sciences at all, but for African Institute for Minimal Sleep. African Institute of, of Minimal Sleeping. The AIMS Institute was founded in 2003 to give talented mathematicians from all over Africa an education at an internationally competitive level. Director Barry Green, a jovial man with glasses and a mustache, is seated in his frugal office at the AIMS headquarters, a large yellow former Cape Town hotel. 
He smiles and explains the Institute's belief the next Einstein could be African. The idea is to challenge us, I would say, to to challenge our own perception of where brilliance is and, uh, and what it is. So I think we don't want to import solutions and expertise from outside all the time. We need to start doing it ourselves. But there's a side, another side who says that uh, Africa needs to play a central role in, in the global mix and that solutions to global problems can also be discovered in Africa by Africans. Ames has five campuses on the continent, in Tanzania, Rwanda, Cameroon, Ghana and Senegal. About 1,500 students have graduated from Ames. Today, they work as researchers or professors at renowned universities like Yale. They work for their native country's governments, for the World Bank, or private enterprises. About one out of three graduates are women, a fact Ames director Barry Green is keen to point out. Well, we think that women are underrepresented in science, particularly a problem where there are other demands. And in Africa, there are lots of demands on young women, uh, maybe to help in the family, to help bring up siblings, and so on. We've had a very, very positive experience with the women we select, and they do very, very well. The fact that they are a little bit more empowered, yeah, because they've got more time and can pursue their interests has been a very positive experience for us. Valimbavaka and Desiree know from their home countries that not much is expected of women with a natural sciences education. Valimbavaka's mother did not want her daughter to study mathematics, arguing that it was a men's domain. Desiree was confronted with the same prejudice in her native country, the Republic of Congo. I'm 25 now. When they ask me, what are you doing? Why are you doing mathematics? At your, in your age, you have to be married, you have to get children. Sometimes you, you think and you ask yourself, maybe they are right. <laughs> but since I came here now, I know that they are not right. <laughs> Desiree and Valimbavaka are self-confident young women with an excellent education who want to make a difference on their continent. Valimbavaka would like to launch a business in Madagascar and commit herself to education. Desiree plans to work as an engineer in her native country. I decided to apply what I learned here to renewable energy because we have problems, lack of problems of electricity. If we can like uh, use renewable energy to, to cover this problem, I think it will improve, why not, the economy of my country too. I will do my PhD in, in optimization of wind farm. It's possible for us to get more solar radiation. It's one of the solutions to, to solve this problem. Both graduates say it is important to find a practical use for their degrees in mathematics. And Valimbavaka's ambitions go even further. <laughs> mm, next Einstein. Mm, yeah, I can be the next Einstein. I want to work hard and win this um, Nobel Prizes. <laughs> Back at the graduation ceremony, a spirit of optimism is in the air. One of the graduates has written a poem that she and three fellow students recite. The last lines are especially poignant. We are Africa. We are innovators. We are mathematicians. We are strong. Above all, we are AIDS. And if you know of a young person or group of young people who are taking the world by storm, 
get in contact with us. We'd love to hear about them. Head to DW Africa on Facebook and leave us a message. Up with it, girl. Rock with it, girl. Show them it, girl. With a bang, bang. Bunks with it, girl. Dance with it, girl. Get with it, girl. With a bang, bang. Come on, come on. Turn the radio on. It's Friday night and I won't be long. Gotta do my hair. Put my makeup on. It's Friday night and I won't be long. Over the past two years, the youth vote has brought about change in Nigeria, Ghana and the Gambia. This time around, it was Kenya's turn. More than half of the country's 19 million eligible voters are under the age of 35, making it one of the youngest electorates in Africa. Abu Bakar Jallo was in Kenya for the recent vote and he joins me now in the Pulse studio. Abu, welcome to Pulse. Thank you, Jesse. You spoke to a number of young people, some of whom were out to vote for the very first time. What were they saying as they headed into the polling stations? Two things, actually. Some people said they would vote for continuity, others wanted change. The problem is in Kenya is that uh, people vote on uh, party lines or tribal lines, if you like. Mostly the people I spoke to doesn't represent the rest of the country, but mostly they tell me that they are voting for change. That obviously means that they wanted the opposition party, the National Super Alliance. The election which saw... Uhuru Kenyatta re-elected president, um, which was disputed by his opponent, Raila Odinga, saw a number of protests. Were young people out on the streets that you saw? And, I mean, their candidate lost. What exactly were they hoping to achieve by going out on the streets? Actually, the people who protested, these were young people, just young people who protested. They were frustrated. And mostly the areas where the protests took place, these are opposition strongholds, the uh, main opposition party, that is the ODM, uh, which is uh, uh, Raila Odinga is the leading um, candidate. And uh, most of these areas in Kibera, in Madare, these are all like slum neighbourhoods. And uh, most people who live there, the young people, they are quite poor, dissatisfied they're not on the receiving end of the government activities. That is why uh, they want to change and they've been protesting for that. But despite the, the tension and the angry protests that you, that you just mentioned, the, this election was historic. There are a number of young candidates who put their names forward for election. Quite interesting, that's right. We had um, Simon Muthuri, who's a 24-year-old, who campaigned on a bicycle <laughs> <laughs> and secured his uh, nomination through uh, uh, Uhuru Kenyatta's uh, uh, Jubilee Coalition. And we also had uh, a biggest breakthrough, um, which is candidates like uh, John Paul Muirigi, who's a 23-year-old. Um, he also campaigned on food and uh, defeated the incumbent there. He managed to make it into the local parliament. And then after winning the incumbent South parliamentary seat, Muigri is also set to become Kenya's youngest um, parliamentarian or lawmaker. And this is not something that happens across Africa so easily because you see most of our politicians, they're all old men. You said they're all old men, but women played a bigger role in this election than they have in the past, with more women than ever registering to vote and also women putting their names forward for election. Is that the feeling that you got when when you were there? Absolutely. I mean, this election in Kenya is historic, historic in the sense that it's a big win for women. You know, there is a constitution, there is a law in Kenya that a third of parliamentary seats has to, has to be occupied by women. But uh, this, so far, this has not been met. But this is the first time that we had um, three, um, actually, women who defeated incumbent and they made it to parliament. That is quite a major success there. We had uh, Sophia Noah made history by becoming the first woman 
um, from an ethnic um, background to be elected. Abu Bakar Jello from the Africa Department, thank you for joining me on Pulse today. To Pakistan now, where most women in the patriarchal Pashtun culture rarely have a chance to make their own decisions. Sex and homosexuality are forbidden topics. So what happens when someone decides they can't stay in their marriage because they love another person of the same sex? The story normally ends in tragedy, either murder or suicide, as it did in this case, which Madassa Shah went to investigate in the aftermath of the tragedy. His report is presented by Neil King. Nandarak is a small town lacking basic facilities. There is no school for girls here, no medical provision, and the population is subjected to frequent power cuts. The town has long, narrow streets, full of houses and a huge population. Boys get out of school early to work in the fields and help their families who are predominantly farmers. It's a hot summer evening. Dozens of young boys, aged between 10 and 18, gather on the streets to chat about girls. Gul Sahar is 28. He is sweating heavily and dressed in dirty clothes. He hurries out of his poorly constructed house to go and meet a male friend who has come by to offer his condolences on the death of his ex-wife, Nazakat. On the seventh day of our marriage, she got up, raised her hands in the air and told me she couldn't live with me anymore because she was in love with a girl. They had met in the village where Nazakat comes from and had spent all their time together. I wanted to take Nazakat to my home in the city where my parents and siblings live. Nazakat was only 13 in 2010 when she was married to Saha. Nazakat told me that she married me only because her brother, who lives abroad, forced her into marriage. She openly told me that she can't enjoy sexual relations with me. She also said that she hates men. She told me that she only wanted to have sex with women. Saha claims that his neighbour knew that Nazakat had been having sexual relations with a girl in her village. She was in love with that girl when she married me. Later she fell in love with another girl, Sheila. Nazakat and Sheila both promised that they would marry each other. They took an oath that they would live together. And if they were not allowed to live together, then they would prefer to die together by taking poison or shooting each other. Ten to twelve elders from the area are sitting in Hujra, a male guest house. Traditionally, elder men of the area will gather in a guest house like this one to sit from dawn until sunset after the death of one of their tribe. But this gathering is a bit different. Many men have avoided coming because of the shame attached to the circumstances which led to the suicide of Nazakat at 20 and Sheila, who was just 15. Normally at such a gathering, people would talk about the reasons for the deaths and about the lives of the people who died. But in this case, the family don't want people talking too much about Nazakat and Sheila because love between two women is taboo and serves only to bring shame on their families. 50-year-old Arif Khan is Sheila's father. He works as a day labourer, and if he misses a day's work, he finds it difficult to support his family. This funeral wake is costing him three days' work. 
He talks about how Sheila was a good girl and didn't do anything wrong in her life until she met Nazakat. Nazakat was our next door neighbor, therefore they used to meet each other easily and frequently. I asked Nazakat to stop meeting my daughter when I realized what was going on. Khan mostly looks down, which shows he is ashamed of his daughter. One can barely see signs of grief on his face over his daughter's death. She came back to her house vomiting violently. It was only later that we found out that both girls had willingly taken poison. Her brothers took her to hospital, but she died on the way. A Pew Research Center survey of 39 countries in 2013 has found that Pakistan is among the least tolerant when it comes to homosexuality. Under Pakistani law, punishment for same-sex sexual acts is severe. But since 1947, there has been no actual prosecution. Muhammad Lukman is a prayer leader in Nandarak. People follow what he says. I can't actually recall any female homosexuals being punished in our religion. But if I found out about them, I would stone them to death. Sex is something which should happen between a man and a woman, and between no other combination of people. I think the penalty for such transgressions should be the same as for men or women found to be having affairs outside their marriage. Pakistani law is a combination of both Anglo-Saxon and Islamic law. If men or women are found to be having affairs outside their marriage, anyone who is married would be stoned to death. For the unmarried partner, they can expect 100 lashes from a whip. Nur Zamina Katak is covered in a shawl, even though it's a hot summer day. We're in her office, where, as a lawyer, she has spent the last 12 years dealing with cases similar to Nazakat's and Sheila's. She works in family and criminal law. Mostly she helps poor women who can't afford the normal legal fees. She has helped women get divorces or seek government refuge places when they are abused by their husbands or families. Ms. Katak also organises awareness sessions with women in their houses, giving them information about women's rights and legal aid. We have courts and we have laws, but often in practice we don't follow what is laid down in those laws. I think that's because our mentality still tends to be backward and people prefer solving things the traditional way. Unfortunately, we live in a male-dominated society where women are not given the right to change the law. Most cases don't even come to court because in 80 to 90 percent of cases, the village elders will solve a case by the traditional methods. And that traditional way of solving things normally leads to death, shame or unhappiness for the women involved. And sometimes that is extended right through the family. And that brings us to the end of this edition of Pulse. We hope you've enjoyed the show and we'd love to hear your feedback. Head to DW Africa on Facebook and leave us a message. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next week with another packed edition of Pulse. I'm Jessie Wingard from all of us here at DW. Have a wonderful week ahead. Yeah, I'm sending this one out to everybody that's had to wait on a money transfer. Yeah, it's kind of whack when they charge you like 10% on the dollar. But you know how good it feels when they say... You